Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Okay, welcome. Uh, this is a virtual event sponsored by KSU's Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity. I'm economics professor Timothy Matthews, uh, director of the Bagwell Center. You can find out more about the Bagwell Center and our mission and uh, student-centered initiatives and activities at coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. That's coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Um, our guest speaker today is Dr. Laura Grube. Dr. Grube is an assistant professor of economics at Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin. She has a PhD and MA in economics from George Mason University. Her areas of expertise are in comparative economic systems, economic development, uh, entrepreneurship theory, and post-disaster recovery. Her academic research has been published in numerous uh, peer-reviewed outlets, such as the Review of Austrian Economics, the Journal of Private Enterprise, the Eastern Economic Journal, and the Journal of Institutional Economics. She co-authored a book published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2015 with the same title as the talk she'll be giving today, which is Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster, Lessons in Local Entrepreneurship. So without further ado, please uh, join me in welcoming Dr. Grube virtually to Kennesaw State University and the Bagwell Center. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you so much to Tim Matthews and also Eric Seller of the Bagwell Center for inviting me um, to speak with you this morning. Um, when Professor Matthews approached me about giving a talk, I thought that it would be appropriate to discuss um, my book, um, which you can see the, the cover right here, Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster Lessons in Local Entrepreneurship. Um, although this is a book that we published in 2015, I think it's very much relevant for today as we see some of the worst forest fires in US history. And as I'll discuss in the second half of my talk, um, as we try to respond to the global pandemic. Great. So our book comes out of a larger research program that was launched in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which devastated New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, Katrina remains the most costly natural disaster in US history in terms of total do dollars of damage. Scholars and researchers with the Mercatus Center at George Mason were interested to study Katrina to understand post-disaster recovery and also community resilience. I was actually an undergrad, like many of you, when Katrina hit, and I helped to gut houses in New Orleans, Louisiana um, during my spring break. And then I went back to New Orleans that following summer to help with interviews um, with the Mercatus Center. 
So although the project was initially focused on Hurricane Katrina, there's been further research um, conducted on recovery efforts in the aftermath of the 2011 tornadoes in Joplin, Missouri and Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And then also 2012 Superstorm Sandy, um, which affected the East Coast of the United States. To date, we now have approximately 400 interviews that have been conducted with disaster survivors. So what you're seeing now is an aerial view of New Orleans, Louisiana following Hurricane Katrina, and you can see the cityscape on the horizon. Um, the hurricane and then the floods that followed killed 1,800 people, resulted in over $100 billion in property damage, and displaced 400,000 Gulf Coast residents. Superstorm Sandy um, killed 180 people on the East Coast, resulted in over $60 billion in damage, and at the time, it was the second most costly disaster in U.S. history. Hurricane Harvey has since uh, surpassed that level, um, and Hurricane Harvey, of course, um, affected the U.S. in 2017. Many people were not optimistic that New Orleans would recover after Katrina. Thomas Schelling, a Nobel Prize winning economist and expert in game theory, certainly had his doubts. Um, so he said, quote, it essentially is a problem of coordinating expectations. If residents all expect each other to come back, they will. If they don't, they won't. But achieving this level of coordination in circumstances of New Orleans seems impossible. These are classes of problems that free markets simply do not deal with well. If ever there was an example, the rebuilding of New Orleans is it. Right. So what Schelling is describing here is a collective action problem. So a collective action problem is a situation in which everyone has a choice between two alternatives. And if each person chooses the alternative that is individually rational, the outcome is going to be worse for everyone. So imagine that you've lost your home in a natural disaster. The rebuilding costs are considerable. You're going to have to remove debris, clean up um, maybe inches of mud if there was significant flooding, um, clean out all your personal items that have been destroyed, hire contractors, tradespeople, and the rebuilding benefits to you are unclear. They're also tied to the decisions of others. So if you decide to return and your neighbor does not, then you're not going to reap the full benefits of a return. You can imagine that if you return to your block and you are the only person that has come back, the other homes are destroyed or abandoned. That's certainly not a community that you want to live in. So given the situation, it's rational for people to wait and see what others are going to do. However, if everyone pursues this wait and see strategy, which is the individually uh, rational option, there's inaction and a community does not recover. We could also model this collective action problem as a two player single shot game under conditions of imperfect information. So here I have 
um, players A and B. These might be two families, two households that were impacted by disaster. So let's say that their homes were destroyed and they have subsequently left the area and are temporarily residing in some other city. The key feature to emphasize is that communication between these two players is difficult. It might even be impossible. And without communication, they cannot form reasonable expectations about what the other is going to do. This game is organized um, in a decision tree. So you're going to you're going to read this kind of from um, your left to right. And we can see that the payoffs associated with the decisions are given on our far right. The alpha symbol here represents the payoff that you receive if both you and your neighbor return. The beta represents the payoff that you receive if you stay in the location where you are currently residing in that other city. And then the delta represents your payoff if you are the only person that returns. And our assumption here is that alpha is greater than beta, which is greater than delta. Okay, so again, the socially optimal result would be that both actors return. However, given expectations around the probability that your neighbor is going to return, you may stay put and we may get the suboptimal result. Okay, so following Katrina, we did see people coming back to the city. In fact, in August of 2006, so that would have been just about a year after Katrina, over half of residents had returned. By 2010, 80% of residents had returned. And then by 2015, we're back to pre-Katrina uh, population levels in New Orleans. So the question then becomes, how do people overcome this potential collective action problem that is post-disaster recovery? Okay, so what I really want to focus on um, today and what I'm going to emphasize uh, from the book is understanding markets as operating within and alongside these political and social institutions. Um, I'm also emphasizing this because uh, Professor Matthew shared with me that this is a interdisciplinary um, audience, so that folks are coming from a variety of different uh, academic backgrounds. So what you see on the screen now is a definition that I am offering um, for understanding political and social economy. So I'm saying it's the study of exchange, paying attention to the context and how individuals interpret their context and also the social resources available. And when I say social resources, I mean social capital. Okay, so that would be connections or ties between people. Um, you can think of community organizations, for example, neighborhood associations, and also collective narratives or the stories that we tell about our community. You may have heard this term political economy before. I imagine that the Bagwell Center also talks about political economy. Um, so that's just simply the relationship between the economy and the state. 
Okay, um, we might emphasize things like the rule of law, how private property rights are needed to support a market economy. I'm adding in social here because I want to stress these other dimensions. So markets, I would argue, are always embedded in a social context. The social context is interpreted by the entrepreneur who is alert to local tastes and preferences and, has, and uses his personal connections to piece together a supply chain. Further, actors are motivated by profit, but they're also motivated by their desire to help others in their community and also by their reputation in their community. In a paper on the political, economic, and social aspects of disaster, Peter Betke and co-authors stated, quote, the tragic dimensions of the event, referring to Hurricane Katrina, in terms of lives lost and lives disrupted must never be forgotten. But the opportunity to learn about the resiliency of social systems also must not be lost, end quote. Disasters present something like a natural experiment and really highlight the things that we take for granted during mundane times. For example, how a grocery store locates all the items that it needs to fill its shelves, how those items are transported to the location, how we assemble the workers at the grocery store so that they're able to stock shelves and ensure that the grocery store is open and ready for customers. Disaster also represents an extreme example of change and uncertainty because there are so many different variables that are simultaneously disrupted and need our attention, okay? So if we, um, are living in the aftermath of a, of a disaster, we may need electricity, we may need another place to live for some amount of time. We're probably gonna need a place to take our kids, so some alternative daycare situation so that we can handle um, repairs to our home. Even in this extreme situation though, people adapt. So change and adaptation are happening all the time Going back to this grocery store example, if there's a shortage of a particular good, maybe toilet paper, producers do adjust. Shortages are typically short-lived. I'm not sure how many of you have seen, um, there's this eye pencil video online, but this is the image that I'm sharing with you here, um, which is making this point that um, supply chains are complicated and that they are adjusting to changes in prices to changes in avail availability of resources all the time. So in our book, um, Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster, we make use of qualitative data. In order to collect this data, we relied primarily on in-depth interviews. And this method allows us to consider how people are making plans, how they're forming expectations, carrying out action, and then also how they're learning through this process. We use the same interview guide for all of our interviews, and it was generally organized into kind of a pre-disaster, during the storm, and then after disaster sections. Some of the questions that we asked included, what was your community like before the storm? Did you evacuate? How did you determine that you were going to return and rebuild? 
and then what were the resources that were available for assistance? The project, I should mention, received financial support from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and the interviews were conducted by scholars and researchers affiliated with the Mercatus Center. Okay, so in total, we have now about 400 interviews uh, with disaster survivors um, following Katrina, the 2011 tornadoes, and then also Superstorm Sandy. In the next few slides, I'm going to highlight just two of the individuals that we interviewed, and these are both um, residents of New Orleans. They are both entrepreneurs. Right, so the first um, person that I'm going to present is Alice Kraft Kearney. She is a registered nurse, and she is the founder of a health clinic in the Lower Ninth Ward. The Lower Ninth Ward is a community that was very much struggling before Katrina, so it had high poverty rates, also high levels of crime. Interestingly, when we spoke to residents of this community, that's not how they described it. Okay, so they described the community as family oriented, orientated. They talked about how people knew each other, um, how when there was a PTA meeting at the local school, parents attended. The Lower Ninth Ward was a community that experienced some of the worst flooding in the aftermath of Katrina, and flood levels here exceeded even 12 feet. So I do have a map for you. So this is a map that was put together by Dan Swenson of the Times-Picune, which is the major newspaper in New Orleans. This is a map of just the city of New Orleans. And in case you're not familiar with um, the geography of, of Louisiana, Louisiana is kind of uh, in the shape of a boot and New Orleans is along the Gulf and the city is located in what would be like the, the toes of the boot. <laughs> so that's what you see here. Um, just to the north of the city is Lake, uh, Lake Pontchartrain. And um, there's the Mississippi River that kind of weaves through the southern boundary of the city. We have at the bottom a key that tells us this the darkest areas, so in black, are areas that received over 10 feet of water. The Lower Ninth Ward is, I don't know if you, can you see my cursor here, Tim? Yep, okay. So I'm hovering my cursor over the Lower Ninth Ward, and that is an area designated in black that there was severe flooding. The flood weather, the flood uh, waters came through the industrial canal and actually broke through um, these boundaries that are illustrated in yellow. So that was the primary source of damage in the Lower Ninth Ward. So Alice Kraft Kearney, a resident of this neighborhood, was displaced for several weeks after the storm. She returned um, and she was really taken aback by the acts of kindness from people who had lived in the neighborhood and also people that were coming from other areas of the city to help out. In particular, there were three different events that she pieced together and interpreted as signs from God that she should open this health clinic. So Kraft Kearney is an example of someone who was motivated by her sense of place or her attachment 
to her neighborhood and also her religious beliefs. So it's not purely an economic um, motivation or what we would define as an economic profit motivation. Kraft Kearney opened her clinic in February of 2007. Her opening of the health clinic made it easier for people to return to this neighborhood, especially those that have chronic diseases, because they would be able to um, have medical care available. Um, the photo that I'm showing is actually the clinic that she opened. So it was before the storm, a single family home, and she converted this to a health clinic. All right, so the second entrepreneur that I'm going to uh, talk about is Ben Sisick, and he is the owner of a coffee shop. Okay. So Sisick is an immigrant from Turkey, and he had been living in New Orleans for several years before Katrina hit. Shortly after the storm, he was visiting a friend in Chalmette, which is an area in the St. Bernard Parish. Um, and let's see if we go back to our slide here. Chalmette is very close to the Lower Ninth Ward, did not receive quite the same level of uh, flooding, but still had significant impact. Um, so Sisek managed a coffee shop uptown before Katrina. He realized that returning residents, contractors, and others engaged in the rebuilding effort could certainly benefit from a place to get coffee, a place to get some food, and also some place to socialize. When asked what motivated him, he said, quote, I think it's my personality. I took a risk and came to the United States seven years ago. I had only a few words in English. I like to take risks and help the community and also to make money, end quote. So the coffee shop became a place to get food, coffee, importantly, internet, Okay, so a lot of people came in and used the internet at his coffee shop to fill out FEMA applications, to um, maybe send an email to a neighbor or family member that was inquiring about the neighborhood. It also became a gathering spot. So people used the coffee shop to reconnect and there was also this spontaneous information exchange. People would come in and tell stories about um, maybe needing to find a particular contractor, or they would share frustrations about filling in paperwork related to FEMA. In the book, we highlight 14 different entrepreneurs. I have decided just to present you with two today, but I did want to touch on some of the other um, themes that we found across our interviews. The first uh, major theme was this idea of attachment to place. And this is something that we heard in Kraft Kearney's narrative. Um, another item that people noted interestingly when they were talking about uh, New Orleans as being a unique place is they referenced things like the food that you can find in New Orleans, um, the jambalaya, red beans and rice, that that's a cuisine that they cannot find in other parts of the United States. They also talked about the festivals and um, general social activity in their neighborhoods. They talked about a certain set of values that were shared by residents in New Orleans. And these narratives circulated through communities 
and we argue motivated people to return and also reassured them that they would persevere. So this narrative about how people in New Orleans are not afraid to work. Okay, they're not afraid to roll up their sleeves and do some of the work that was required to clean up. Another theme that we found was this um, discussion of social ties. So when we asked people about how they decided to return, a lot of people pointed to help that they received from friends and also family. So people re relied on individuals that they knew well, which is in the literature referred to as bonding social capital, and also referred to connections that were more loose. So maybe people that they knew from neighborhood associations. And then another major theme that we found is um, that community leadership had a really strong role to play. And leaders came from business. So some of them were private sector individuals. Some of them were leaders of nonprofits. Them were religious leaders, so pastors. Many of the people reported being a member of a church and then said that their pastors were instrumental in encouraging people to return and rebuild. Um, in the book, we identify three key roles that entrepreneurs play after disaster. So those are providing goods and services, restoring social networks, and then signaling that recovery is taking place. Okay. The first role, providing uh, needed goods and services, is well recognized. Okay, The fact that entrepreneurs, though, can do this even in the most extreme situation post-disaster is arguably underappreciated. The two further roles that we identify, restoring social networks and signaling recovery, are not traditional economic roles. However, they illustrate that the entrepreneur is always tied to a social context. In restoring social networks, um, you can think about it as, as an entrepreneur comes back to the community, they need to connect with customers, okay? They also connect with friends. They try to piece together their suppliers that they relied on before the storm. They have to find new suppliers. All of this is bringing together um, new social networks and also restoring old ones. In the case of Ben Sisek, we also see in some cases that entrepreneurs can provide a social space that allows others to come and reconnect. This third role, signaling that recovery is taking place, when others see that a business is open or even that someone is working to reopen a business, they understand this as a credible commitment. Okay. Um, someone is investing their time, their money to come back and they likely recognize that others are gonna view that action in the same way. What we really want to highlight in the book, though, is how these different roles help to overcome the collective action problem. Okay, So I want to be clear how these are connected. So the first role, providing goods and services, in effect, we argue, reduces the costs of returning and rebuilding. Part of the cost associated with coming back is just coming, is needing to find a place to get groceries, is needing to locate the contractors to do the work. Okay, so entrepreneurs absolutely help in reducing the cost. 
By restoring social networks, they increase communications and make it easier for people to form expectations and just know what the plans are of others around them. And then the third role, the signaling role, is an anchor for other expectations and really brings everyone together um, in this interpretation that yes, the community is going to come back. So again, the entrepreneur acting in this, this social context helps to overcome the collective action problem and then helps to spur post-disaster recovery. Okay, so I'm now getting to um, maybe the second half of my presentation. So I said at the beginning that I wanted to tie this into the global pandemic. And I'm curious to think about how we might apply some of this to understanding responses to COVID, right? And I should start by saying that for most of us, COVID has not been as devastating as the natural disasters that I highlight. Um, still, if we look at total lives lost, there are magnitudes more of more people that have, have died as a result of the pandemic. And of course, many lives that have been disrupted. In early March, um, many of you probably experienced the shortages. Um, so shortages of key goods, toilet paper, um, cleaning supplies, and then shortages of other items that are required for everyday living. Many of us struggled to figure out our home and work lives and what they were going to look like for the coming um, weeks, months, foreseeable future. And there's absolutely been economic turmoil. So in May of this year, 20 million people were reported as unemployed. And this corresponds with an unemployment rate above 14%. To put that in perspective, that is a number far greater than what we saw during the Great Recession of 2007, 2008. So just as entrepreneurs and civil society responded post-disaster, we also see change and adaptation now. And one of the key um, sectors that have, has had to change, has had to adapt, would be healthcare. So the first thing that we saw is many healthcare providers decided to delay non-urgent procedures and surgeries. So they actually shut down parts of their operations. Visits that could be moved to uh, telemedicine um, were moved online, okay? And this was a technology that existed before COVID, but certainly was not widespread. So many more physicians moved to virtual visits. And of course, we saw all of the testing facilities that were needed. Um, so facilities um, were certainly set up in clinics and hospitals, also local pharmacies. And here I have an image of a drive-through testing facility. Thinking about some of the other um, businesses that have responded, um, the craft beer industry. Um, and here I'm highlighting the Milwaukee Brewing Company, which is a craft brewery in my hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, brewers all around the country were affected. Um, many of them that had tasting rooms 
at their uh, breweries had to shut down. And while they were shutting down those operations, they noticed within their communities that there were shortages of things like hand sanitizer. Milwaukee Brewing Company is just one example of a craft brewery that decided to manufacture to produce hand sanitizer. So they used the alcohol-based um, hand sanitizer. They, they recognized that they had the basic ingredients on hand, that they knew how to bottle things. In some cases, these breweries actually sold hand sanitizer. In other cases, they donated the sanitizer. Um, the FDA actually streamlined the process to register to be a producer of hand sanitizer, um, which made it more possible for breweries to get involved. And what I want to note here is that a key aspect of getting this new product to market then was using a social network, okay, because they had a group of people that were interested in purchasing beer, but then they had to go to social media and to use their connections in the community to figure out who was in need of hand sanitizer. So for example, they reached out to restaurants that were offering carryout services. Okay. They delivered hand sanitizer to police stations and um, also other businesses that were trying to stay open um, such as daycare centers. The third example that I have of change and adaptation is related to pods, okay? Um, and I don't know if, if Tim or, or certainly Eric is, a, is probably aware of this um, innovation. So K through 12 schools, um, many of them closed their doors and moved to online learning. Um, as we started school this fall and parents needed to find a new way to provide education to their children. Okay, so parents decided to organize these learning pods and what this is, is a group of people identifying um, that they have young children and they're pooling together their families and one parent is volunteering to oversee the e-learning during one day during the week so that other parents can then do their day jobs, okay? If you think about what makes this possible, it would be really strong social ties. What you're doing is expanding your bubble to further families. So you need to have this level of um, familiarity. You need to be willing to expand contact with others. All right, so thinking about the political and social economy of COVID, I have this, this question that I'm um, maybe interested to get your feedback on. So we see that social resources certainly promote post-disaster recovery and help us to handle situations of crisis. Another question that I'm interested in, is it true that crisis actually strengthens these social resources? And I want to suggest that there are a few ways in which crisis could do this. Okay, so community members could deepen existing relationships and develop new connections. They could also 
adapt existing associations to serve new functions. So thinking here, that would be the brewery moving from making beer to making hand sanitizer. And then they could also form new associations to meet collective needs. So that would be the example of these learning pods. All right, so putting all of this together, um, natural disasters and crisis really highlight the importance of social resources. And again, here I'm referring to social capital, community organizations, and then also collective narratives. To really understand how markets work, we need to consider them as operating within a social context. And then I also want to posit um, for your feedback, is it possible that crisis at the same time strengthens these social resources? So thank you so much. Well, I actually have a couple of questions back to the Katrina issues to maybe get the ball mm -hmm. a bit. So first you said just in terms of numbers that one year after disaster population was back up to about 50% of pre Katrina yep. levels. And then I think it was five years later, 80%. And then a couple of years after that, it was over pre Katrina levels. Do you have any data on how many of those people were people that had lived there before and moved back versus just new people coming in? Um, yeah, so that's difficult. The way that we get those numbers is from the post office delivering mail. <laughs> so it's going to a residence, but we don't know who that person is. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. Um, we do have some anecdotal evidence or we do know about populations of folks that had lived in New Orleans that um, following the storm, were displaced and went to cities such as Houston. OK, so there's to this day a large population um, in Houston that I think in some cases they had family ties there before, so it kind of made sense um, that that would be a, a place that they could kind of restart their life. Um, Houston also had a pretty booming economy, so they were able to find um, jobs. So, so that is a great question. I don't, I don't know how many were new folks and how many were um, returners. Yep. Okay, and then also, also related to Katrina. Um, I mean, even for someone my age, you know, this is 15 years ago. For, so, for our students, I yeah. mean, a lot of them would have been infants, toddlers when this was going on, perhaps. Um, but I don't even remember to what degree was government assistance provided in some form or another, either, you know, strictly what we describe as government assistance um, for people to come back and, you know, what degree did the government provide incentives for them to return? And I guess what I'm getting at, obviously, uh, you could probably appreciate, but were the decisions to return actually individual free market decisions um, or were they what we might call indicative planning on the part of the government? Yeah, um, so that's also um, a really great question. So kind of what is the the role in gov role of uh, government in maybe assisting people to, to come back? Um, interestingly, there was a strong push initially to convert a lot of these neighborhoods to green spaces. 
Um, so on a more local level, so not at the federal government level, but at the local level, there were conversations about turning, for example, the Lower Ninth Ward into just a park, um, which um, may, I mean, makes sense in some ways because we know that New Orleans, the city itself is actually below sea level. <laughs> so when there's water that comes in, it tends to stay in. And that's why they have this elaborate system of canals and even um, these pumps that when the water comes in, try, tries to like bring it back out. Um, another question, um, Tim, that we could talk about is the kind of how the cost of living in these areas is subsidized and that, you know, people have uh, flood insurance, but it's perhaps not below market rates. Uh, yeah, it's not it doesn't actually represent the risk to live there. The um, the flood maps were also out of date and not particularly good um, before before Katrina. So so I guess one of the the answers to your questions is that at a local level there was there was actually efforts to um, get people to to not return to some of the communities and then there was a really quite negative response to that. Some of that tied to questions of, you know, race. Are these just neighborhoods that you don't like and therefore you don't want them to come back? Um, thinking about the role of federal government, um, the more immediate assistance, uh, one of the things that was offered were these trailers, all right? And you probably remember hearing about the, the FEMA trailers. Um, so it was this portable trailer that you could actually put on your property in front of your home and kind of live out of that trailer while you were working on um, cleaning up your house and while contractors were, were busy. Um, so the trailers were made available. The major assistance that FEMA has is called the um, Individuals and Households Program. Um, so people did receive um, money from FEMA, certainly. Um, I have another paper that looks at the IHP Individuals and Households Program um, and how people were able to access that after Superstorm Sandy. And we do see that lower, so populations that have lower levels of education and also um, ethnic populations tended to have a more difficult time. We we kind of hypothesize in getting access to those funds, um, but certainly um, federal money was available. Yep. Um, the focus of our research has really been how do communities organize themselves to come back? We've in other in other papers that you're probably aware of, maybe within the public choice literature, they're looking at um, the incentives that government um, puts in place and how that kind of shifts decisions. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, clearly they're intertwined, right? I mean, the, the yes. decisions are heavily influenced by yes. the government regulations or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. And then I guess also just linking it to uh, the present day issues related to coronavirus yeah. in, in terms of kind mm -hmm. of the disease transmission aspect of coronavirus. In many respects, it's kind of the opposite of the collective action problem, right? For returning and rebuilding a community post-disaster, in some sense, you want everybody to be active and it's you know, making the, the choice that we would describe as, you know, taking action. 
um, and it's really a straight up kind of prisoner's dilemma, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. multiplayer prisoner's dilemma, whereas yeah. with you know preventing disease transmission, we kind of want everybody to be inactive and stay at home. Although if everybody else is staying at home, the risk of me both to myself and transmitting to others of you know going to the grocery store, going going out to eat is lower. So there, there, mm-hmm. there's definitely some different aspects there. Um, yeah, know, and more, I, is, am I correct in thinking it's almost more of a tragedy of the commons type issue with the disease transmission aspect of Corona? Um, sure, you could you could describe it in that way. I get what I what I find most interesting is how people are trying to engage in action and do some of these things that we need to do, but do so in a safe way, right? Um, so, um, the brewery example. They're not able to have folks coming in to do beer tasting. They're instead using um, their staff at this moment to produce another good and distributing that, making it possible for grocery stores to be open, making it possible for um, police to, you know, stay healthy. Um, so, yeah. I think the coronavirus is is a really really interesting um, situation. I think it's also interesting to see how um, how it's accelerating trends, right? I mean, even um, the use of of um, virtual learning and higher education, right, is another big um, example. I think. So I teach at a small liberal arts college and the idea of teaching a, a course online is um, quite controversial and we never would have imagined doing this. And I think after people have have been teaching online now for almost um, you know six months or more, this is certainly going to change the way that we think about education and, and what's possible in a virtual space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, some questions from the uh, audience attendees now. Okay. Um, yeah. Tristan wants to know: Can you cite some examples of instances where, after a hurricane or disaster, a population didn't return? Um, you know, so we ended up mm-hmm. with just the long-term steady state, you know, well below uh, what we had before. Hmm. Interesting. Um, examples where people did not return. Um, so there are there are some when we look at Katrina and New Orleans, there are some neighborhoods that now have populations that exceed before the storm and some neighborhoods where people um, did not come back and it, it really looked, if you look at the city and the recovery rate by neighborhood, it's kind of a checkerboard pattern. Um, we we have made efforts to explain, you know, how do you explain um, the rate of 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 return or or how many people come to a come back to a community? And I think one of the factors that we really um, kind of narrowed in on was people's connections to others in that neighborhood. Um, if it was a neighborhood 
where there were a lot of rental properties and people were coming and going, it was much easier for people to say, well, I'm just going to go to this other other place. So they didn't have the, the same attachment to place. Um, I should also mention in the lower ninth ward, for example, even though incomes were, were well below um, median uh, levels and there were high rates of poverty, I think 80% of households owned their home. Okay, so um, that's something that is kind of tied to or explains um, people not coming back. Um, I'm trying to think of, of other things that would um, would push people in, in that direction. Um, I guess thinking about, you know, Tim's question, there are certainly other cases where um, governments use eminent domain or um, it's very clear that the community is going to be continuously impacted by disaster and people do make the decision that the costs outweigh the benefits of, of living um, there. Um, I think in the aftermath of Superstorm Sandy, um, parts of New Jersey and New York, that was certainly the case that people decided to move um, away from some of the coastlines. Yeah. Um, actually, another uh, question from a, a audience participant, uh, Giselle, is asking, and I think it's actually somewhat loosely related to the question I asked about early on of clarification on, you know, the population returning and, hey, are these new people or people that, you know, previously mm -hmm. lived there? Um, but I, I think that perhaps you might be able to get better data on this one. She's mm -hmm. asking um, about, you know, businesses. Can mm -hmm. you differentiate between you know, businesses that used to be in New Orleans yeah. coming back and reopening versus, you know, new entrepreneurs and business people or businesses that didn't exist pre-disaster that now start uh, setting up shop. And I mean, I could be way off base here, but I would think that that you might be able to track even with like taxpayer identification numbers yes. more easily than, you know, you can with, you know, having to rely on mail being delivered to an address. So what, yes. is there a difference there? Like to what degree is it new entrepreneurs coming in versus previous existing ones returning? Yes, um, so I don't have those numbers on hand, but I believe it's something like um, maybe 30% were new um, businesses of the, the data set that, that I was looking at. Um, when I was putting this presentation together, interestingly, the two people that I highlight right, are folks that did not own those businesses before the disaster. So um, this point is well taken that, that, that some people saw Katrina and that aftermath as the opportunity to start a business, um, to start a, a clinic or another restaurant. So, um, so yes, I think it was something like 30%, uh, which is a pretty, I mean, substantial <laughs> proportion of, of total businesses. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, great question. Um, and now also a follow-up question by uh, Giselle as well, um, just asking about property rights issues. Um, so what she says, I guess more of a statement, I wonder if there were property rights issues with people not going back to their homes and new people moving in and seeing empty houses. It's related to this like long-term 
if someone just leaves a house vacant, what mm -hmm. happens to that property? I mean, does the state have the right legally to seize it after a period of time and sell it off? Um, or will it just remain vacant until the original owner decides to relinquish the right? Yeah, um, so I don't know the answer about the kind of the legal um, details of 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 that. Um, I would imagine, and maybe Tim, maybe you know, I would imagine that the city gets rights to the property after some amount of time. Um, and in some of, so it's also would be important to distinguish um, between, so in areas like the Lower Ninth Ward, homes were pushed from their foundation. So there wasn't even really a structure to come back to. And the city used their resources. Okay, so taxpayer money was used to remove um, debris in a lot of these situations. Um, I think because there was this idea that they needed they needed to clean this up um, and they needed to do this at some level of speed to ensure um, you know to be to be aware of of safety issues too um, that they didn't want um, you know, the remnants of, of houses to be hanging on and hanging on to blocks for, for years to come. Um, but yeah, I guess my, my guess would be that these these properties are now belong to the city. Um, but yeah, that's also a, a great question. Um, OK, so one more uh, audience participation question, kind of shifting gears a bit. Um, away from New Orleans and Katrina and toward the current on ongoing pandemic. Uh, just broadly, if you could care to speculate at all, how do you think the economy will adjust and look like as we recover from the pandemic? And I guess one of the, you know, to interject my own uh, yeah. into this, you know, I, I hate the term new normal. I hope this isn't the new normal, uh, but do you think that we w have reached kind of a new normal or or do you expect a, a kind of full return to what life, you know, pre-Katrina, or sorry, pre-COVID? Pre-COVID. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, uh, selfishly, right, I, I hope that there is a vaccine <laughs> that is available um, in the next few months here. Um, I, I mean, I, I imagine that between the vaccine and then at some point enough of us will have gotten the virus that we will have some sort of herd immunity. Um, I don't, I think that in some ways our economy has changed, right? And I think maybe the, one of the biggest changes would be just in the workforce and how we go to work. <laughs> that there are so many people that prior to COVID, their bosses really wanted them to show up and be at their desk. Um, and now that they've been working from home for a few months, they see that that their employees are still doing their work and that um, maybe there are certain overhead costs <laughs> that can be avoided if people are working from home. So I think that that is maybe a, a shift that is going to continue even after 
um, you know, COVID passes. Um, I mean, I also I also think again, Tim, within our own um, industry of higher education, that there's going to be a lot more um, online learning, which isn't to say it didn't exist before, um, but I think it's you know really gotten into every corner of higher education now. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question. I wish I knew all of the ways in which it would be changed, um, but I mean, the I should also say I think the the real tragedy from this, and um, maybe some of you have been reading articles, is the the impact to people who are already kind of right at the poverty line, um, either in the United States or in other parts of the world, right? Um, so people that were, you know, migrant workers in India, people who are in China that were working in factories that didn't have savings. Um, if we look at the projections for I mean, for for years now, we've been seeing global poverty <laughs> levels going down and down and down. And I think that um, this is this is something that's going to hang around and really impact um, other parts of the world for much longer than what we'll feel here. So, mm -hmm. yeah. OK, well, great. Thank you very much for your time this morning. And it was a very enlightening presentation and uh, appreciated it a lot. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, I'm also happy to answer questions. If you want to send me an email, um, you can find my email online, um, Laura Grube at Boy College. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop.